0: Um, Would you turn with me, please, in your Bibles to John chapter 9? We are making our way through um, John's Gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament, where we have been exploring the signs of Jesus, Uh, some miracles that are recorded in John's Gospel by John about Jesus for a specific reason, and uh, this is the next one that we come to, the healing of a man who has been born blind. It's a powerful reading. So I'd like to take my time with it, and I know it's quite long, but I pray that you will enjoy hearing this story. If you have a Bible in front of you, follow it uh, with me, please. I read from the New Revised Standard Version. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying it is he. Others were saying no. But it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And he said he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But we do not know how it is that he now sees. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah... Would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you are trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. And it is a remarkable story. Story of a man who has never been able to see, who has given sight back by Jesus. Jesus. He doesn't understand who Jesus is. He doesn't have a full picture or a full um, definition of who this man is that has spat on the ground and put mud on his eyes and opened them again. And yet he knows this thing. This man spoke to him. This man spat on the ground. This man lifted up the dirt. This man put the dirt on his eyes, told him to go and walk, wash in an ancient pool called the Pool of Siloam. And he, he did as he was told and he could now see And by being healed, by being given back his sight, this man is pulled into a religious battle, an argument that involves him and the Jewish people and his parents and the Pharisees and the leaders and Jesus himself. And all the way through that argument, he doesn't really understand why he's the center of all of the argument because he keeps saying again and again, all I know is this. I was blind and now I see and he did it. But there's another argument, there's another story, there's another thing going on here that I'm going to reflect on in a moment or two with you. But before I get to that, I want to spend just a few minutes exploring John chapter 9 and some of the details that I can't say too much about in the course of my sermon, but I think are important for us to reflect on. If you go back to the beginning of this story, in verses 1, 2, and 3, I think you get a critique of our the way in which we view disabled people, which is incredibly important for us to hear. In verse 1, the man is seen, he's the, the blind man, the man who is blind is seen. Uh, Jesus, we are told, sees him as he is walking along. He sees a man born blind. The order of the words is important. He sees a person before he sees a disability. He always does. The response of his disciples is also important because they see disability before they see a person. We often do. Ask anyone in this room who has lived with disability, who has had it touch their lives through their own experience or the experience of their children or the people that they love or their colleagues, and they will tell you story after story of how disability is seen before personhood again and again. It is never so with Jesus and it should never be so with Christianity. They say Jesus sees a man born blind. Their first question is, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? There always has to be somebody to blame. There always has to be a reason. There always has to be an explanation. They may have been well intentioned in their questions, but their hearts were profoundly wrong. They assumed that because this man wasn't able to see, either he had done something wrong or his family had done something wrong. And the Church of Jesus Christ often still makes that mistake. But the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that there is not an automatic connection between disability and sin. There is not an automatic connection between illness and sin. And when we start there, we are dehumanizing the people that are in front of us. I've been involved in the world of disability for 20 odd years, helping churches think about what it means to be safe places for men and women and boys and girls who live with disability. I count it one of the greatest privileges of my ministry, actually. I don't talk about it a great deal here because it involves various things around the world. But in 2004, I um, was leading a series of workshops across the United Kingdom for what was then the third part of the Disability Discrimination Act introduction, trying to help churches to think about how they could create spaces that were open and welcoming for people who lived with disabilities. And again and again and again, when I was talking about signage or about the size of bulletins or about accessible toilets, it's not a disabled toilet, by the way, A disabled toilet is a broken toilet. (laughs) It's an accessible toilet. Accessible parking spaces out here are not for you so that you don't have to walk as far. They are for people with blue badges who need to be able to get close to this building because of their disability. Please don't assume you can park there. They are for people who need help and support and that should be honored by us, not out of legislation, not out of law and demand, but out of kindness. As I walked across the United Kingdom, traveled across the United Kingdom preaching and teaching and helping churches think about this, again and again and again, here was the question that church leaders and elders and pastors and people in congregations asked me every time I talked about the issue of welcoming people with disabilities. What's the least we have to do to get away with this? And my response was always one of being discouraged by that, because according to Christian tradition, according to our theology, every single person is made in the image of God, and of equal worth, and of equal value. And we shouldn't discriminate against them on the grounds of their disability. If you have a child who um, is autistic, and they shout out in this service, never feel as if they are somehow unwelcome or they are an intrusion. They are perhaps a reminder to us of the dignity of all people. If you live with disability, if you have disability in your family, never feel that you have to apologize for it. Never feel as if you have to kind of hide it away or be ashamed of the people who are living with that disability, including you. They are loved and cherished by God and should be loved and cherished by us and by every Christian community, amen? The second thing that was often said to me was, We haven't had very long to sort some of these things out because the legislation, the third part of it was introduced in 2004. And my response was always the same, Well, I guess 2,000 years isn't very long. (laughs) So this story is rooted in the dignity of people. Jesus' response to the disciples when they say, Who sinned, this man or his parents? is a difficult response to read because he responds to them, neither, but this man was born blind so that the glory of God might be revealed. Now, if you think of that long enough, you will realize that is a difficult thing to hear. It's a difficult thing to understand and it's a difficult thing to accept. I'm not so sure that it is the healing that is the great and glorious shining moment for this man, although, of course, in his life it is. As we will come to the story later, I think what Jesus means is there is something of his grace and his mercy and his tenderness being evidenced to the world around us through this man's uh, disability, through his frailty, through his particular set of circumstances that teaches us all a lesson. And I think that perhaps the reality is that in all of our lives, there is something that we can give to God that he can shine through. There is a A challenge that we face, there is a a set of unexpected or unsought circumstances that we can lay at his feet. And maybe you're here today because you're supporting Eva and you're not yet a Christian. And you think, well, how could God take my life? He takes all of our lives if we will let him have them. And he does something remarkable with them. Do you notice how this man is objectified, by the way? Not just by the disciples, but by everybody in the story, including his parents. If you read it carefully, he's objectified um, by the the disciples of Jesus. The only person that doesn't objectify him is Jesus. But he's objectified by everybody else. In verses 8 to 9, those that know him, that have experienced his healing, seem to be talking about him rather than to him. And then in verse nine, you hear this powerful verse. Read it slowly if you've got your Bible open. As they're saying, is he the guy that was blind? Is he not the guy that was blind? Some said he was, some said he isn't. Here's what verse nine says. He kept saying, I am the man. Actually, the language is very strong. It's as if he is saying, I am here. I am in the room. Everybody was willing to have a conversation about him. But nobody was willing to have a conversation with him up until he kept repeating himself. I am the man. The change in him was remarkable. They couldn't believe it. You pick that up in verses 10 to 12. And then in verse 13, they bring him to the Pharisees, the man who had been formerly blind. Even the Pharisees objectify him. They start to have conversations about him rather than with him, eventually asking him what has happened and he tells them. But then his parents are drawn in In verses 19 to 22, and listen to this. The Pharisees say, is this your son who you say was born blind? And they respond, ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, at first, you think that's them defending him. You think that's them saying, well, he's here and he's present. He's able to speak for himself. And you pick it up because they say it again in verse 23. But the reason for why they say that is in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. So even they objectify their son. It's too dangerous for us to say he's our boy. So ask him. It's too dangerous for us to say that Jesus healed them. Ask him. They acknowledge he's their son, but they're not willing to say anything to defend him. Can you imagine yourself in that situation with your children? I think that's remarkable. The mystery of this story is his blindness that I don't understand, and I can't give great reason for, other than verse three, that in this man's life, God was going to display something remarkable. In all of its frailty and all of its uncertainty and all of its challenges, God had decided to do something in his life that would change not only him, but the world. I wonder what it is in Malcolm Duncan that God could do something with. Is it my journey through particular chapters in my life? Is it my deafness? What is it that God might do in my life, to bring glory to his name? And what might God do in your life that could bring glory to his name with what you see as a weakness? And how do we as a church model to the world a different set of priorities around honor? That we will not be a community that treats disabled people as less. In fact, we will not be a community that treats anybody as less, but that we will find a way to celebrate the humanity of the people in our community rather than be legalistic and dismissive of them. The urgency of what Jesus is doing in this story is told in verse 4. He says, I am here to do the works of him who sent me. As long as Jesus is on earth, he has a job to do, and he will do it. And it's in verse 5 that you hear the second iteration of a phrase, which is crucial to understanding this story, that lands in your life and my life. I am the light of the world. Jesus says that in chapter 8 towards the end of it. He says, I am the light of the world. And then he says it again here in verse five of chapter nine. And it's like two bookends that hold together what is happening in this story. I am the light of the world. All through the story, by the way, you'll notice question after question. That's how rabbis taught. And that's how people discovered the truth. There's a question in verse 2. There's a question in verse 10. There's a question in verse 12. There's a fourth question in verse 15. There are two in verse 16. There's a question in verse 17, a question in verse 19, two in verse 26, two in verse 27, one in verse 35, one in verse 36, and one in verse 40. Question after question after question that gets from the man's situation all the way through to the very center of the conversation. Who is Jesus and what is he doing on earth? And why does this man's life matter? Jesus as he says, I am the light of the world is rooting this story in something more than simply this man's healing. He's challenging those that are watching and the way John puts this story, he's challenging those that will read it and those that will hear it like you and I to think about who Jesus is. That's what I want to spend the last 10 minutes of my message doing. Help you to think about what this means, about who Jesus is. You see, there's a way of reading the Bible, particularly in cultures like Northern Ireland, where we've been to Sunday school and we were taught Bible stories. And we, we know them, but we don't really know them. We've read them, but we haven't let them penetrate our hearts. And we read this story or we sing songs about it or we tell each other about it. But what does it really mean? For all of us, for those of us that are Christians, for those of us that are not Christians, for those of us that are exploring faith, for those that are walking toward God, for those that are walking away from God. What does it mean, this healing of this man born blind? There are a couple of things I want to highlight. Firstly, and obviously, most importantly, this highlights that Jesus is the light of the world. That in him, light is found. In him, hope is found. In him, life is found. The bookmark of John 8 verse 12 and John 9 verse 5 holds together this great saying of Jesus being the light of the world. In verse 30 of chapter 9, you read this. The man answered, he's asked by the Pharisees, who did this and who is this man and how did he do this? The man answered, here is an astonishing thing. (laughs) You do not know where he comes from, And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. There's the root. There's the issue that we need to unpack. You see, the Jews believed profoundly that miracles were done at the hands of those who were righteous, That's why you have Nicodemus in John chapter three saying to Jesus, who are you? Because nobody could do these miracles except they were sent from God. And the Pharisees, who we'll come to in a minute, the religious legalists who think it's their job to guard the truth, cannot get their heads around Jesus. They can't deny the miracle and yet they can't accept that he is from God. So they claim that he is a sinner, a phrase that is used often in the New Testament to describe those that are not walking in the ways of God. But they can't say that because the miracle is there. And they can't claim the miracle is of God because to do so would be to give dignity to Jesus. So then they find themselves in a situation where they give the miracle the dignity of saying this is from God and say Jesus isn't. And they evidence their own inconsistencies. And the man who has been healed says, What are you talking about? You say that a sinner can't do this. He made me see, therefore he can't be a sinner. And their response is, well, he must be. Why? Because they're holding on to their own intransigent belief rather than being confronted with the truth. They'd rather go down arguing their theological point than see Jesus for who he really is. That sounds like an awful lot of Christians to me. They'd rather go down arguing that they're right even when the truth is staring them back in the face. Jesus is the light of the world. The Pharisees and their encounter with Jesus and their understanding of him show that they can't understand him. He is the light of the world of this man, first and foremost, this man that couldn't see can now see. In the most important sense, he is the light of the world of that man. He's not an objectifiable lesson. He's a person. He's also the light of the world that exposes the Pharisees' hypocrisy and their sin and their shame and their legalism and their fear and their anxiety. When they see him, when they see this man that has had his eyes open, they don't know what to do. They drive him from their presence in the end. In verse 35, Jesus, we read this. Jesus heard that they had driven the man who could not see out. And when he found him, he said, do, not, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Do you see that? Do you see that? That's why I love reading the Bible. You have seen him in the miracle of the man who has been given back his sight. I thought that was quite exciting. (laughs) Of course, we wouldn't get that unless we'd been blind all our lives, would we? But imagine the man that made you see saying, do you know who the Son of Man is? And he says, show me who he is. And he says, you are seeing him. Wow, beautiful. Have you watched those videos on YouTube of people who can see after an operation or who can hear after having implants put into their, and the joy in their lives, the the utter amazement that they feel that somehow something has changed. All their lives they were captured in one place and now they, they can see or they can hear. That's what you're capturing here. And Jesus says, the person that did this to you is the son of man, it's me. And he immediately believes him. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see me may see, that's the man. And those who do see may become blind, that's the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would, not know, you, you would not have sinned. But now that you say, we see, your sins remain. And he captures them. He says, you can't have it both ways. You tell me that you don't want to be blind. Okay, you're not blind. Who am I? If I'm the son of man, accept that I'm the son of man. But if you're saying I'm not the son of man and that you can see, then your sin is the, the issue, not mine. And at one and the same time, the light of the world dazzles the man born blind and blinds the people that can see. Because that's what happens with light. It's shone towards the Pharisees and they turn away from him because they'd rather live in their religious culture than be liberated by the light of God. What does the light of God's grace do in your life? Does it dazzle you or does it blind you? because it will do one of, both, one of those two things. The light of the world is the source of life. John's gospel begins with this idea that in God was light, and that light was the life of man. All the way through the Bible, the light of the world is the source of light, the source of life, the source of hope. And here in this passage, Jesus healing this man is demonstrating that he is the light of the world. He's the source of our hope and the source of our joy. He is the light of the world who is the healer and the hope of the world. The one who restores us, makes all things new, gives us back an ability to see, gives us a reason and a purpose. But the light of the world is also the son of God and the forgiver of sins. Do you see what happens in verses 35, 36, 37, and 38? As this blind man who earlier had been asked, who is this man that has healed you? And he says, he's a prophet. He didn't say he was the son of man. He's asked by Jesus, do you believe in the son of man? He says, yes, I do. Who is he? And Jesus says, I am he. And we are told that the man believed him and worshiped him. Jesus is a good Jew. He would refuse that worship if he wasn't God. He would deny that attestation if he wasn't the son of man. For those of you that aren't Christians who have perhaps been taught or believe that there's nowhere in the Bible where Jesus claims to be the son of man and the son of God, that's not true. He makes that claim here. Every time he accepts worship, he makes that claim. Every time he forgives sin, he makes that claim. He said it to a woman in a well. He says it to this man born blind again and again and again. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. I am the savior. I am the Christ. I am the son of God. I am the son of man. And you must do something about that. Does his grace blind you or does his grace dazzle you? And here is the light of the world forgiving sin, the light of the world giving life back, the light of the world giving hope back. But of course, for the Pharisees, he is the light of the one who exposes their own hearts and confronts them with the reality of God. They are bamboozled by Jesus. He has to be a sinner, but he isn't. And when he confronts them, they don't know what to do. They're left with no answers to his fundamental question. But secondly, and you may not notice this, but it is important in the overall picture. I want to bring you back to the story again for a moment. What was it that Jesus did to heal this man? Again and again, three times at least in the story, we are told that he spat on the ground and he lifted earth. And he put it onto the man's eyes and told him to go and wash in an ancient pool. And he could see. Why does that matter? Why the detail of that story here in this remarkable tale? Well, you understand it because there's another part of the passage that says this. It was the Sabbath. And twice the Pharisees ask how he did this. And a third time they ask the man, how did he heal you? And it all revolves around the mud. You see, in an attempt to protect the Pentateuch and the teaching of the um, the Torah, the Pharisees and the scribes developed law after law after law that they learned on top of the commands in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible to keep the Sabbath. To the point that they were a ridiculous list. So for example, a hen could lay an egg on the Sabbath, but you couldn't pick it up. If a wall fell on a person, you could take enough bricks off to see if they were alive. If they were alive and their their injuries weren't terminal, you had to leave them there until the end of the Sabbath. If a sheep fell into a hole, you could get it out. But depending on what kind of sheep it was and how dangerous it was, you might not be allowed to. You weren't allowed to walk more than a certain distance, because if you did, you were classed as working. And you weren't allowed to make bricks. You were allowed to spit in the ground. Terrible habit, isn't it? (laughs) But if you touched it on the Sabbath, you were making a brick. And the intentionality of Jesus is remarkable. On the Sabbath day, he spits on the ground and he lifts up the dirt in front of the Pharisees And he puts it on the man's eyes and tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, a couple of interesting things. Number one, at no point does Jesus break any Sabbath rule in the Old Testament. What he does break is the rules that were added to the Old Testament by the Pharisees and the scribes again and again and again. He never breaks an Old Testament rule. Never once. And that's important. But in lifting up this dirt and putting it on the eyes of the man, it's as if the Pharisees are kind of going to hear about this. And Jesus, you almost get the idea that he wants to say, wait, well, will they definitely hear? Because if they'll definitely hear, I want them to know what I have done. He is saying something about the way he heals this man. There are other stories in the Bible where he just heals them. He doesn't, there's nothing involved. There's no physical touch. He didn't need to do this, except he was saying something. And the Pharisees are more upset that he made a brick than, he, than, than they are rejoicing that this man could see. That's why they say to him twice, how did he do it? How did he do it? And this man says, look, like, he spat in the ground. He put dirt in my face. He told me to wash in some water. I came back and I can see. So they ask him again, how did he do it? And when they hear it the first time, they are appalled. And they say, he could not be from God. Why? Because he touched the dirt that he spat in and made a brick. And in doing it, Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath isn't the Lord of me. I sit above your traditions and your customs, and your demands, and your requirements, and your expectations. I will not be pinned down by a religious sect that claims to know God better than anybody else. I am God. Our churches need to hear that. We need to hear that. We look at people and say, you couldn't be a Christian, why? Because you don't believe the same thing as me on this, and 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 this. and this. And this. We make it harder for them to become Christians than Jesus would. You couldn't be a Christian. Why? Because you don't read the same version of the Bible as me. You don't believe the same things as I do about this and this and this and this and this. this. But when I read the scriptures, here's what I understand. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Guests and friends coming today are watching online. Hear me talking about becoming a Christian, surrendering your life to the light of the world. I'm not asking you to join Donald Eland. I'm not suggesting for one minute that we are a perfect church. I'm not saying that we've got everything right. God is in this church across this province. He loves his people. He's passionate about them. I don't need you to jump through my hoops in order for you to become a Christian. The only hope that you need to jump through is this: Will you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Jesus' healing on the Sabbath in the way that he did is a direct challenge to the Pharisees' authority, to their rule and to their demands. Oh, we need more of that in our churches. Where we can see Jesus for who he is, we can let the lion loose. We can allow him to be himself without binding him with our expectations. The last time I checked, Jesus wasn't a Pentecostal. And thirdly, Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus, the Son of God. This last closing section of this story is what this story is all about. This man is being rejected by the Pharisees. He's been healed by Jesus. He's being um, pushed away by his friends. He is being pushed into vulnerability and exposure by his parents. Jesus hears about it and goes to see him. Verse 36 Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. And he said, Lord, I believe. Does that sound reminiscent of any other part of the scriptures to you? A man whose son was ill. In Mark chapter 9, who needed God to do something and came to Jesus. And he said to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Forgive my unbelief. What do you say about Jesus today? Lord, I believe. I'm dazzled by your grace. Or are you blinded by it? What blinds you from him? This man saw him. How many of us have eyes that need opened, not physically, but spiritually, have lives that need turned. And even though we don't want to admit it, either because of our secularism or our atheism or our religiosity or a whole plethora of other reasons. We are like the Pharisees this morning. We won't believe him because he doesn't do it our way. We won't accept him because he's not pressing our buttons. He's not affirming our worldview. In the words of Martin Luther, the famous reformer, let God be God and every man a liar. Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus, the Son of God, who invites us to look at him who invites us to believe in him and who ultimately invites us to worship him. But do not miss the end of this story. The Pharisees can't do it and Jesus says, I have come in judgment. Sister and brother, one day, online and in this room, you will stand before God. And he will ask you this, did you see me? And you will not be able to say that you never heard. Because on the 28th of July, 2019, you heard. You'll not be able to say no one explained because on the 28th of July, 2019, somebody explained. So you will have to make a choice that I cannot make for you. Will you see him and be dazzled by his grace? Or will you turn your eyes away from him and be blinded because of your own hardness of heart? The decision lies with you. Let's pray. Lord, in your grace and in your mercy, would you come and visit us, your people? For those joining online, for those in this room, may each of us know the reality of the light of the world in our dark hearts. Thank you that you've opened our eyes. Thank you that we see. Thank you that there is grace and mercy and forgiveness in you. And thank you that your hands are outstretched to every person in this room and online today. Help us to respond to you in grace.